Welcome to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Magic Valley Bible Church has been serving the Magic Valley for 20 years and is located at the corner of Gooding and Main Street in downtown Twin Falls, Idaho. Our service starts at 9 a.m. and is streamed live on our YouTube channel. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible. Magic Valley Bible Church, built on God's Word. Take your Bibles and open them to Mark chapter 2. I thought it was only fitting to continue our study and exposition in the Gospel of Mark. Christmas is all about Christ, and uh, what a joy it is to come to a text that continues to unfold why Christ came. But before we do that, let us, let us pray. Father, again, we, we rejoice. Rejoice in the fact that you sent your son, <clears throat> demonstrating a love that is to be experienced by all, <clears throat> knowing, however, people do reject, they refuse. On the other side of that, there are some who receive, and we count it a great blessing to have our hearts open to the truth, to be able to come and and receive this, this mercy, this gift. It overwhelms us. It it causes us to, to spill out with praise. It causes us to to live in such a way that allow the Spirit to, to have way with our souls. And we pray this morning that our ears would be attentive to what you have in the scriptures. That the Spirit will take the Word of God and, and plant it deep within our souls so as to be men and women who not only receive the truth, but do the truth. Be with your shepherd. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Gospel of Mark, all about Christ. We think about Jesus in His first advent. We think about this coming Messiah who has been prophesied in the Old Testament, fulfilled only in Jesus. And we know that first Christmas, it launched God's redemptive plan. It was, of course, marked with distinct divine miracles, pointing to the reality that God was moving and sending His Son. You think about the virgin birth, the angels proclaiming the truth about the Messiah to a bunch of lowly shepherds, only bursting out in heavenly songs of truth. A star or Shekinah glory illumining the sky. It shouldn't have been hard to see that God was doing something when He sent the Messiah, Jesus Christ. His hand moved and all of creation was at His mercy. And leading up to that event, prophet after prophet pointed to a coming Messiah who would come with a clear purpose, and that was to unleash redemption 
and reconciliation. It's hard not to think about Christmas season and all the prophetic utterances of this coming Messiah being prophesied in the Old Testament. I love the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 52 and 53 gives us clearly points to the, the Messiah coming. And he was going to come and he was going to suffer and he was going to die. Isaiah 53, 5 and 6 says this, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Shouldn't be a surprise that this is exactly what the Messiah was going to do. Isaiah 9 gives us this first Christmas scene when it says in verse 6, For a child will be born, be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Titles describing what the Messiah will do. Prophecy after prophecy. Actually pointing to two advents. Two comings. The first coming is what we find ourselves in the New Testament, and the Gospels record that for us. But this first coming, the Messiah is going to be a suffering servant who would die for sinners. And the second advent where the Messiah will come again and will reign forever. And since this first advent, this first coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah who would come for the purpose of redeeming sinners. And this is exactly what we see in our passage this morning. Jesus gives us a clear direction on why he came and for whom he came. We'll see this in the calling of Levi as, as he is gathering his disciples to come alongside him. Luke calls them Matthew, and so we can identify <clears throat> that this tax collector was definitely Matthew, known in Mark's account as Levi. And we see this calling and with whom Jesus associates with that all these friends of Levi, all leading to a profound statement of the reason why he came. Mark is driving to verse 17. That's his purpose of this narrative. But before then, let's set up the scene. Let's look at this. And what we notice first in verses 13 and 14 is that Jesus is calling a tax collector, and it's pretty remarkable why he does Look with me, follow along as I read verse 13 and 14. It reads there, it says, And he, Jesus, went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. Simple narrative. Jesus is, is gathering his disciples He's already called some fishermen in chapter 1. But deep beneath this, there really is a profound statement of truth that affects us all today. 
And there's also the action that prompts the scribes and the Pharisees to take issue with how Jesus is doing this. They're not liking it. Remember, we are in the midst of, of five conflicts with the, with the religious leaders of the day. Opposition narratives that gives us a great understanding that the religious leaders excuse me, of Jesus' day didn't like what he was doing. And so what Mark is showing us is, in essence, is Jesus is upsetting the apple cart. He's turning over the the religious tables of the day so as to get to their heart of why he came and why they needed to get in line with what God is doing with the coming of the Messiah. But they won't like it, as we will see. But first, the calling of this, this tax collector. Mark, like I say, calls him Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Alphaeus was a common name back then. Uh, Levi, definitely, I mean, Mark is pointing out to a particular man. And like I said earlier, Luke, and of course Matthew, calls himself Matthew. Nowhere in Scripture do we see where, why the name change. However, we do often see this with Jesus, and as he calls sinners, we think of Paul, who was originally called Saul, and his name was changed. And often the name change reflected the grace and the kindness of God. In the Hebrew, Levi means joined or in harmony with, and in Matthew, the Hebrew means a gift of God. And clearly what Matthew is going to experience in his calling to follow Christ and to receive grace and to receive this transformation of his life, it definitely was a gift of grace. Now, verse 13, like I say, sets the context for us. Jesus is at the seashore. Crowds were following him wherever he went. And so he's going into the cities, in and out of the cities, He's, he's trying to elude them to some degree. And however, the crowd is coming because why? They want to see a miracle. Remember, we have already a couple, so many weeks ago, saw that Jesus' hair healed a paralytic. And how determined these loved ones of this paralytic got him in front of Jesus so he could be healed. However, the crowd is, is gathering. Jesus retreating to the seashore. He, he, of course, they're following him out there, at least some of them. And he has this healing ministry, but you and I both know that Jesus didn't come just to have a healing ministry. And he gets to that point, finally, in verse 17, he will, he will say he came to redeem sinners to save them from the wrath of God. And so it's appropriate when you think about the purpose and the reasons why Jesus being consistent with the calling that God has placed upon himself. At the end of verse 13, it tells us that he was teaching them and we know exactly what he's teaching them. He's telling them, and I I point back to it often, but verse 15 of chapter 1, he's telling them that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's time to repent and believe in him. So the crowd is there. They're walking along the seashore. As he's walking, there's a, there's a tax booth. Verse 14. 
is where we see this, this call of, of, of Levi or Matthew. 14 says, and he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. I mean, this is <clears throat> simplest of terms, right? Mark records for us the simplest of terms, this radical call for, G, uh, for Levi to, to, to stop what he's doing, repent, believe in him, and follow Jesus. And I think the reason why it's so simplistic in, in giving just the simplest of details is because of who Jesus is calling. There's not a lot of color here, but what we do know is that Jesus is calling a tax collector. And to fill the weight of this, we need to understand a tax collector and what it meant to be a tax collector during those times. Now, I think that we all probably have a, uh, an idea of how they were looked at back then. If I happen to mention three letters, IRS, to you, I think that you will kind of cringe a little bit in your seat knowing that they are not necessarily something that you want to get something in the mail from, unless it's a payment, a refund. But often, they have their hand out and they want more. Such is the case here for Levi. But as we will see in a much more intense way, a tax collector in Jesus' day was despised, hated, and they were known as traitors and thieves. And if you were a respectable Jew at that time, desiring to follow the law, you had nothing to do with them. They were your enemy. They were seen as the scum of society. And the reason is because of what they did. They, of course, were under Roman rule. And when the Romans took over, they collected taxes through a system called tax farming. This would be much like when Rome sets up shop, they are looking for individuals to collect the tax. It would be much like a franchise where you would uh, expose yourself saying that I will buy at this position in order to collect your tax in this district or, or, or whatever the case may be. And in so doing, you would pay the district tax to the Roman Empire at the end of the year. <clears throat> As we know, the Romans would assess an area or district, assign a fixed tax to it, and they would sell the right to collect those taxes to the highest bidder. The buyer had to, over the assessed figure at the end of the year, come up with that fee. But here's the catch. They could keep whatever they collected over and above the assessed tax. This is how they would make a living. Pretty lucrative, but pretty <clears throat> evil in their scheming. People didn't know exactly what their assessed tax was. The tax collector often set it, and he often set it to a place that would benefit themselves. They would look at their living and realize that they're doing pretty well. They were isolated, yes, from, the, from, from, from society, but, but they were doing well in their own state of mind. 
looking a little bit deeper into the system, the Roman tax system has, has two categories of taxes. First, there were stated taxes. In other words, because you have breath, you will be taxed. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> there was a poll tax, which means all men ages 14 to 65 and women aged 12 to 65. Women, you get there a little bit sooner. They had to pay a tax for simply being alive. In light of that, because you were alive, you also had to have a ground tax, which required one-tenth of all your grain and one-fifth of all wine and oil produced. In some places, it is noted that they were required to collect tax even on fish. Now, this makes sense to us. Why? Because Jesus is at the seashore, right? He's called some fishermen in Capernaum. They, you have this collection of, of, of fish industry going on. That's a great place to set up shop and start collecting some taxes. Makes sense. Levi being there, not only collecting the stated taxes, but every catch that came out of the Sea of Galilee, they were, he was opposing this tax upon them. That was one tax. The second category of taxes was an income tax. And that was noted to be 1% of one's annual income. The tax system bred, of course, like you say, this exploitation of these, these tax collectors, and they made money hand over fist. So you can see why they're hated. Tax collectors were despised because of their reputation for being dishonest and overcharging of taxes. They couldn't be a judge, even within the religious system of the day or, or even in the nation of Israel. They couldn't even hold an office because they were looked at as being someone that could is so hated and they were treated as outcasts. When you dive into some of the Jewish writings of the day, the Mishnah, which are Jewish laws that were made by the rabbis to, to apply biblical law, uh, to extend it, I, get, I would say, to the Israelites. And it's pretty interesting when you read a little bit about what they, they set up as laws that would govern their people. And they wrote that if a tax collector entered a house, just by his entrance into a house, it made the whole house unclean. They even said it was permissible to lie to tax collectors to protect one's property, is the reasoning. This is the man, the disciple, that Jesus calls. A man from the dregs of society. And Mark simply states, Levi got up and followed him. Luke 5, according to the same passage, Luke 5, 28, tells us that, and he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. There was no doubt that there was a change in Levi's heart. He left his livelihood to follow Christ. He considered the cost, and when the holiness of God walked by his tax booth, he submitted to the holiness of God. He repented, believed, and followed Christ. I mean, this is remarkable. 
in simplicity of two verses, in the weight of an understanding of context, you see what Jesus is doing this. He, he, he is calling and letting us know that even the lowest of lows can't be saved. That's remarkable when you think about this. That Jesus is, is calling salvation and giving salvation and giving this account of Levi or Matthew as we know him to remind us of the power of a saving grace. That he can save any sinner from any walk of life. And that only he can change your heart and call you to drop everything and call him and you and I to follow him. Beloved, that is the power of the gospel. Jesus comes, he invades your heart and your life and calls you to repent, believe, and follow him. By the way, the rest of your life. That sounds pretty daunting, but listen, in light of the exchange that it happens, where grace mercy and forgiveness comes to you, that's an exchange I will take every day. The gospel of Christ calling sinners to repent and to believe. This is what the first Christmas delivered. But there's more, right? Jesus doesn't just call sinners to repent and believe and follow him, but Jesus finds himself associating with sinners. And what he does next really, like I said, upsets the apple cart and the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day. They're having a problem with this. We see this in verses 15 and 16. Jesus associates himself with sinners. I love this. Look at verse 15. It says, And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. I mean, this is, like I say, a, a celebratory type of feast. Levi having the, the, the guilt and the weight of sin lifted by, by Christ's calling and forgiveness. And, and you think about all the sins that Levi has committed. He knows whom he has cheated. He knows what's going on and, and what he has done much like you and I do when our sins are revealed to our own soul. But this is a spontaneous expression of joy, of gratitude, of what Christ has done in his life. And so Levi hosts a party. How do we know it's Levi's house? Looking at the text, you could probably think, well, is it Jesus' house? Because he lived in Capernaum, right? Or is it Levi's? Well, Luke tells us in Luke 5.29 that it was Levi's, and you can see the correlation of why we go to the other synoptic gospels to give a little bit more clarity. And so Levi invites his friends together, and Jesus and his disciples, and they have a banquet. But here comes the rub, right? Eating a meal in someone's home was a big deal. It meant that, and communicated to, to, to not only the people that you are having this meal with, but even to the outside world, that there's friendship, there's companionship going on. The problem came as to who was at the party. Jesus' disciples, Levi, the despised tax collector, as well as the scripture tells us all other tax collectors and even a separate group that Mark points out, sinners. I mean, I think we get this. Birds of a feather flock together. Levi had those type of, of unscrupulous people. I mean, they, they were reputed people that he associated with. He invites them. They're gathering in his home. 
but sinners? These would be people who would be morally wicked and didn't care about one iota about the law. They were a law unto themselves. They did what they wanted to do, and they were despised by the scribes. Why? Because they weren't law obeyers. They were rebels. They were riffraff. They didn't care about the food restrictions. They didn't care about what needed to be clean, what needed to be unclean. All that went out the window. And this infuriated the religious leaders of the day. And so you can sense this tension that's going to happen. In verse 16, it pulls it out for us. What it says, when they saw this, right? And when the scribes and the of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? I mean, this is a condensation. I mean, you know, he's condemning Jesus. He's pointing a finger at them. You can sense the tension with the statement. In their eyes, Jesus has lost all credibility. And so they begin to mock him and throw verbal rocks at him and his disciples. Then, in typical Jesus style, he rebukes them and calls out their ungodliness and gives them the reason why he came Look at verse 17, and hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. You talk about shutting somebody's mouth up. There it is. Jesus hears what they are accusing him of, and so he responds. He responds with a common proverb that everybody would agree on, right? We would agree with this. And then he brings a zinger. The reason why he came and the purpose why he came. First, the proverb, he says, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. So we agree with that, right? You usually go to a doctor when you're sick. But then he says, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Of course, that call there is speaking about the idea of what he's already preached about and has already declared about repenting, believing, and following. And as you surmise the statement, you, you, you have to understand a few things here, that, that, that this is a warning against the proud, self-righteous heart that was in the church at the time. It was a warning to those who think that they can earn their salvation based on their own righteousness by what they did and not necessarily what Jesus did. And Jesus shocks them with a, a, a defining statement that's not the righteous, the self-righteous, the proud, the one who thinks that they got it all figured out, the one who thinks that their good works are going to earn them salvation. It's not them who had come to save. But it's these sinners that are gathered around the table who are wicked, who are immoral, 
who are despised, who are liars and thieves. Jesus came to call sinners to come to him, to turn from their sins and to trust him. And once that happens, they would deny themselves and follow Christ. Listen, beloved. We all need Jesus. The Bible's pretty clear, right? We're all sinners who fall short of the glory of God. We need a Savior who's going to save us from the wrath of God against our committed sins. And your little list of, of things that you think you have done that will buy you God's forgiveness is nothing but hogwash, right? Nothing that you can do can buy God's forgiveness for your sinful life. It will get you nowhere. It won't get you closer to heaven. If anything, it puts you on a fast track to a place called hell. Simplicity of this. We all need to, to repent is what Christ is saying. We need to repent and believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. That's the truth that he brings forth to us. That's why the first advent. Jesus came that first Christmas to set in motion a divine salvation that is finished at the cross and through his resurrection and ascension, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, he, he has accomplished all of that and he says for you to come, repent, and believe in him. Some of my favorite verses are often ones that I quote here in light of the gospel message. I think of Acts 4.12 which clearly tells us this when it says there, there is salvation in no one else. And by the way, when it says no one else, that means you and I. There is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. I don't know if you're like me, but in, in raising your kids, you're, you're often trying to help them grasp the gospel concept. And so very early in their age, I'm, I'm, I'm calling a spade a spade. I, I say, you're a sinner. And my kids didn't like that. I have a little five-year-old in my home. I call her a sinner. And she goes, no, I'm not a sinner. You are. <laughs> and I say, yes, you're right. But so are you. I mean, we get that. We, 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 we live in a day and age where churches are even afraid to use the word sin. Why? Because it is us. And our sin offends a holy God. Oh, we can embrace that because that's exactly a biblical diagnosis of our soul is that we are sinners. Jesus says in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. How exclusive, how narrow. That's the gospel. That is his right to hold. There's not another door, not another way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And if you don't receive him, if you don't repent, if you don't follow him, you're not going to receive heaven. 
And then a very familiar couple of verses for us in John 3, 16 and 17. Jesus sums up his first coming by saying this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. When you think about Christmas, there's your Savior. I mean, this is why we celebrate Christmas. Forgiveness, grace, mercy has come by the divine hand of God. As you can tell, we have a communion table set in front of us here. and We'll participate in that in just a little bit. But this is what communion does for us. It reminds us of Christ, His work, salvation, His glory, His grace. Demonstrating as an organist for us to remember that He is the way. You know, to trust in anything else, to trust in your family, to trust in your church, to trust in your church membership, to trust in your works, they all fall short. That's why Jesus is Lord of the church. Because we can trust Him. And our only hope is in Jesus Christ. Amen? Now, before we walk away from this text and head toward partaking in communion, I want to give us a few implications of the text. Some application. And I think there's much here, but I want to give you a few that, that have struck my heart. For one, don't let the devil lie to you and say that there's no way that Jesus can save you in light of your sins. Listen, that is a flat-out lie. His grace is far more sufficient than any sin a sinner can commit. Jesus has more grace, more forgiveness than sinners have sin. And Jesus wants you to come to him. He wants you to repent, turn from your sins, and trust him and receive it. To receive that grace. And until you get that right, your life will be a mess. Thinking that you can earn your way, thinking that you can be good enough. You're looking over your shoulder. I just got to be better than one person. But the reality is, is that we are all deservedly and rightly so because of just one sin in our life receive and should receive the righteous judgment and condemnation from God. So don't buy into the lie that Jesus can't save you. Listen, Jesus can save you. No matter what you've done. Jesus saves you, period, and continues to save sinners like you and me today. That's simple. So don't walk out of here thinking that you're hopeless. You have a Savior, and His name is Jesus Christ. There's a second implication. 
And this one kind of hits home a little bit, right? I, I look at this and I think about it. But the second implication that kind of stirs my heart is that sometimes we can see ourselves as scribes who categorically put people in places and groups where once we're saved, we disassociate ourselves with and we surround ourselves by other Christians. By the way, I mean, body life is great, right? I mean, we want to surround ourselves with people that are going to encourage and edify us, but, but understand something here. Let me ask you a question. How many unsaved people do you have in your life? Jesus had many. But how many unsaved, unredeemed people do you have in your life where you have this message of hope, truth, and salvation that you're departing to them? I'm not telling you to be like them and participate in their sins. I'm telling you to be Christ and show them Jesus. Listen, if you don't have unsaved people in your life, the question is why? The call is for us Christ followers, the one who have been saved, to take this message of salvation and you take it to sinners. Somebody took it to you. I remember very distinctly what I put my friend through until he just had enough and said, listen, I got to give you the gospel and I need to run away from you. And he shared Christ. You talk about hidden being hit with a ton of bricks. Christ sat down with sinners and he ate. And he gave them truth, but he is Lord and desires to be their Savior. All that to say, listen, be a friend of sinners and give them Jesus, right? Love them. Love on them, care for them. Always, however, give them Christ. And once the Lord saves them, go after more sinners, right? You invite people into your life because you want to to give them the hope that you have. And like I say, I'm not saying to be like them. Don't participate in their sin. And you will stand out. It doesn't take very long for me to be around a bunch of sailors who who cuss, and you just talk like a a born-again Christian should, and they are already pierced. And then they find out you're a pastor, and they start forgiving (laughs) left and right. But here's the point. You're not offending me. You're offending Christ. The Christian life is not to be one of isolation. Someone who is on their old island with their own friends and no more. Nor is it to be an assimilation. We, we don't do what sinners do. But our life is on a gospel mission, is it not? And our call is to throw seed and to share Jesus Christ. I think those are two ouchers. Uh, you know, you think about one, an encouragement truth and making sure that we understand theology, that there's no sin that can, can ever outmatch the grace of Christ. But also, understanding it's okay to have sinners in your life. 
and they will be taxing to your soul, but you continue to love them and you continue to show them Christ. Yes, there's a passage in Scripture that I think about where it says, don't cast pearls before swine. There, there will be a point when that sinner just says, you know what, I don't want your Jesus. Okay. We'll go find some other people and love on them and encourage them in the things of Christ. Those are some of the things, like I say, that we push back from this text that stirs in our soul, especially when you think about family gathering. And I'm pretty sure many of you have sinners within your family. Are you going to show them Christ this season? Are you going to talk about Christ? Are you going to point to Christ? I'm not saying in a condescending way. I'm saying in a hope-filled way. After Christmas, we have the joy of gathering with family, and, and we'll have some of those. And they're going to be looking at our family. They're going to be, well, I mean, there's going to be discussion. But may we be lights to them. I'm going to ask the men to come, and we'll prepare our hearts for communion. As they do so, remember this is a, an ordinance that is given for believers. If you know Christ, if you're new here, haven't partaken in communion with us, we, we invite you, if you have repented and trusted Christ and are following Him, by all means, partake with us as we remember our Lord and Savior. If you don't know Jesus, just encourage you to let those elements pass. Our desire would be for you to know Jesus. And if you have questions about what we're doing and the message that you heard this morning, that we would want to be able to interact with you and discuss and point you to the Scriptures and to the Savior of the world. But if you don't know Him, I would just ask that you allow the grape juice and the bread to pass by. And then there are, are those who are, are struggling and Paul reminds us in Corinthians, who says that if we're not right with a brother or sister, that we allow those elements to pass because we need to get it right first. If that is you, I would encourage you to let the elements pass too. But with this, let us pray. Father, we do thank you for the morning. We thank you for the, the short passage of, of Scripture that, that stirs our hearts and and drives home the point of why you have come. Jesus, you have come to save sinners. You did that by spilling your blood on the cross. You did that by, by cutting a covenant. With God, God cutting a covenant with God, it's remarkable to think about that. This salvation that is found only in Christ is unmovable. It is permanent. It will not change. And it's for sinners. 
Jesus, we, we thank you for opening our hearts to this truth to call us to come. Yes, we must repent. Yes, we must receive. We must agree with, with you that, that the right status of our soul is that we need a Savior because of the sins that we have committed. Yes. Because we fall short of the holiness of God. Yes. Because there's no way that we can earn salvation based on our own merit. Yes. Jesus, we need you. And we thank you for coming and establishing a divine redemption for sinners to receive and to believe. That is the reason why we come and, and celebrate the Lord's table. We're reminded of your grace and your kindness to us. So may our hearts be receptive to the truth that has been taught and to the reality that Jesus Christ, you are on your throne and you're changing people's lives and redeeming sinners by your grace. That is what we celebrate in the Lord's table. We remind ourselves of this great salvation. May we do this with a worshipful heart. May we do this with delight. May we continue to be encouraged every step of the way. Why? Because Jesus, you are king. We pray these things in your holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible.